Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Quest Diagnostics Topics and Drug Testing Podcast Series. My name is Frank Samara. I'm the Director of Marketing for the Drug Monitoring and Toxicology Franchise here at Quest. I'm real excited about today's episode. It's titled Presumptive Versus Definitive Drug Testing, What You Need to Know. I think you're going to get a lot out of the discussion. Today, our podcast will feature Dr. Jeff Gooden. Dr. Gooden's our senior medical advisor for the toxicology and drug monitoring franchise, and also Dr. Jack Kane. Dr. Kane is our director and medical science liaison, again, for the tox and drug monitoring franchise. Jeff and Jack, it's great to have you with us today. I'll turn it over to the two of you to get the discussion started. Thank you, Frank, and thanks for joining us for another podcast episode entitled Prescription and Illicit Drug Testing, What You Need to Know, with a focus on presumptive and definitive testing. I'm Dr. Jeff Gooden, a pain and addiction specialist. If you haven't listened to any of our Quest podcasts, we'll give you some instructions on how to do that, but we've done a number of them surrounding drug testing and what you need to know for your practice. So thanks for joining us today. Today, what we're going to do is talk about the value of drug testing for both prescription and illicit drugs and give you some insights onto the different testing methodologies. We'll review just briefly the current state of the drug misuse epidemic. Some of you may have seen the preliminary data that came out from CDC just about a week ago, but really we're going to focus on the value and the clinical utility of drug testing, talking about the two main methodologies of drug testing, presumptive and definitive testing. I have with me today, Dr. Jack Kane, as you heard. Jack, do a little bit of intro and and give me your thoughts on the numbers that came out last week from CDC. It's not surprising, as you can tell, you know, drug overdoses, they continue to increase, they continue to rise. And I'm always asking, which drug is the culprit? Is there one medication? Is it combinations of medications? Are synthetic opioids still surging? What about methamphetamine? I mean, we've seen recent data showing that methamphetamine is actually making a comeback in terms of increasing contribution to overdose deaths, which is very unfortunate. So we're still in what I like to call a drug misuse epidemic. It's not just an opioid epidemic, and it's increasing. Absolutely. And for those of you that didn't see the numbers, they've gone the wrong way. We CDC estimated that there were more than 90,000, I think the number was over 93,000 overdose-related deaths. And when we talk about the deaths, it doesn't account for the probably hundreds of thousands of more of overdoses that didn't lead to death. So we -hmm. still are in the midst of a drug crisis. As a matter of fact, Jack, remember just last year, we had a publication that came out. We entitled it The Opioid Epidemic Within the COVID-19 Pandemic, and we showed a couple of interesting things. If you think about Quest being one of the largest labs in the country, who better to surveil or get surveillance data about drug use in various parts of the country? And we saw a couple of very concerning things early on when the COVID-19 pandemic first started. We saw a massive drop in drug testing, as much as 70%, which I don't even think to this day has rebounded back to back to baseline. And like you mentioned before, we saw a scary increase in positivity for things like fentanyl, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine. So really, we had started to make some progress with the whole opioid epidemic. And unfortunately, the pandemic just really shot us back and we're still in the midst of a drug crisis. Very scary stuff. Again, you saw that fentanyl positivity has increased 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine and heroin. And it's co-laced with everything now. It's co- we're seeing it in cocaine. We're seeing it in methamphetamine. We're seeing it even in marijuana. And yet drug monitoring decreased. Yeah, Very scary stuff. 
certainly is scary times. And, you know, when we talk to docs, they understand the value of drug testing, but many of them don't have the insights as to what tests to order. What's the difference between point of care and lab-based tests? And you and I are going to talk a little bit about that today because, you know, drug testing is such a critical tool to help guide decision-making when it comes to taking care of patients. So Jack, talk to us a little bit about drug testing, just from, from an overview. You know, what's a matrix and how do we do testing? Drug testing can be performed on a lot of different types of biological samples, urine, saliva, sweat, hair, and blood. And each of them have their own situational utility in the sense that blood might have a shorter window of detection for identifying drug misuse than urine, but it captures recent use. Same thing with oral fluid. Oral fluid can capture recent use, but has a shorter window of detection. Why? Because you're looking less for metabolites or byproducts of the drug in oral fluid versus looking for those byproducts in urine. And so they each have their utility. Do I say one is better than the other? No, I'm very situational and it depends on how you're managing your patient or how the patient presents their symptoms at that moment. And you, you've seen many patients come in to your office and you know how many of them have looked impaired? Yeah. So Jack, it's important that docs have at least a basic understanding of the tests that they order so that mm-hmm. you know when your sample comes back for norhydrocodone, you don't question whether that's a new drug or where did that come from. You understand the metabolic pathways of those. So it helps us with our clinical and our pharmacological decision-making on an everyday basis. So when I'm asked, you know, hey, why do you drug test? I say, well, it helps me manage my controlled substance prescribing, right? I want the sample to be positive for the drugs that the patient is taking, but negative for illicit and other prescribed drugs. And in just a moment, Jack, I'm going to have you kind of rehash some of our old health trends reports talking about how often the samples don't come into the lab with what the patient is supposed to be taking, right? So it gives us some early indicators of drug abuse, perhaps substance use disorder, maybe look for patients that might be diverting their medications And let's face it, from a clinician standpoint, for those of you out there on the front lines, the medical boards and the regulatory agencies, they expect us to be drug testing. It's part of almost every state mandate. All of the prescribing guidelines all talk about using urine drug testing to advocate for yourself, protect yourself, and help with patients. You know, we we look back, I don't know, 20 plus years ago, and they did studies that showed that 40% or more of patients tested in a pain practice showed some aberrancy. And these were patients that docs just thought were, you know, being normal behaving patients. Either they had the drug in their urine, they didn't have the drug in their urine, or they had something in their urine that didn't belong there. So we've known for quite some time that drug testing picks up these abnormalities. Jack, tell us a little bit about some of the data we published a couple of years back in health trends. Like what percentage of samples that come into Quest don't have what belongs in there or have something in there that that doesn't belong there? It brings the question, you know, when we look at our data set, is patient self-reporting reliable? Our data set shows that it's potentially not. And if we look at our data here, we looked at millions of drug testing specimens. We have arguably the largest drug testing database in the country and over 40%, so approximately 48% of Quest drug monitoring tests showed signs of drug misuse. You know, we can define that as a drug test showing additional drugs that were found. So that unreported Xanax that appeared in conjunction with that Percocet you prescribed, can't tell you how many consultations I've given with an unreported benzodiazepine 
uh, showing up and a drug test result, or also different drugs could be found and then no drugs are found. So if, if a patient's taking like a Vicodin, I expect to see norhydrocodone and hydromorphone in the patient's urine specimen, one or the other, or even all three, including the parent drug. And what happens when we don't see that? We start questioning these behaviors that could be consistent with drug diversion or just taking too much of, of the drug uh, right when they get it. And Jack, just to put some perspective, 33% of the samples that came in, there were no drugs found, right? Clinicians are sending us samples to test for drug. A third of them didn't have any drug in there. And like you say, half of them had something in there that didn't belong. So it really is yep. just incredible. Let me remind our listeners that multiple guidelines talk about the need for drug testing. Probably the one that made the most highlight is the CDC opioid prescribing guidelines. Those came out early in 2016. And they say when prescribing opioids for chronic pain, clinicians should use urine drug testing before starting opioid therapy, and then continue to testing patients along with prescribing. Now, they said at least annually, and a lot of docs take that to mean once a year. But like you said before, some of these people are higher risk than others. You need to really customize how often you test for your patients. So a low risk patient, fine, once a year. But a higher risk patient, I have some colleagues that test every month, every two months, every three months. So it needs to be part of your initial and your ongoing patient assessment as you prescribe these patients and monitor them over time. Yeah, and Dr. Gooden, and I'll add that if you see in the CDC guidelines, they denote monitoring for other controlled prescription drugs and illicit drugs, so not just opioids. Yeah, that's great, Jack. Good point. All right, so let's get into testing. Tell us about you know, some of the terminology we use for drug testing. When you talk about drug testing, we get into the methodologies and those methodologies are very important and the terminologies used in them because sometimes they're used interchangeably and sometimes they're used incorrectly or they're perceived incorrectly by providers. So you can have a qualitative drug test, which is a result that tells you if a substance is present in the specimen or not. So positive, negative. And then you can have a quantitative value generally that's generated by a definitive test result and it gives you the drug concentration, the amount that's present in the specimen whether that be oral fluid, blood, urine, it just gives you an idea of the drug concentration that's been detected. And then you have a presumptive test, which is a quote screen. And um, it's a very general test that's often more rapid and kind of gives positive negatives. Sometimes you can have a semi-quantitative presumptive test, um, but again, it's a very general picture. Definitive is the bread and butter for drug testing. It provides a quantitative value, as I mentioned earlier, but it gives you an analyte level of detection. So very specific and very sensitive. So we can detect really low levels of drugs. And then you have therapeutic drug monitoring, which is, is this patient taking this medication accordingly, but also is the drug concentration within a range that is considered effective or therapeutic, or is it in a range that is in a toxic level, or is it in a subtherapeutic range? So that's therapeutic drug monitoring. So Jack, that would be like doing a lithium level or a digoxin level would be therapeutic drug monitoring. Correct. Yeah. So I think for purposes of our audience, you need to understand that presumptive testing can be done with what many of you have seen as either point of care cups or dipsticks that are you know relatively cheap and quick to do in the office or sending to a lab to do a more complex type of presumptive test. But either way, like Dr. Kane mentioned, those tests are presumptive 
And really for any kind of definitive results, we need to do definitive drug testing, which is, which is very well defined. So Jack, why don't we take a minute and really just dive in, into both of those types? Give me yeah. like a, a one minute overview of presumptive testing and maybe some of the, the pitfalls. Presumptive testing is typically done using an immunoassay to differentiate negative from presumptive positive specimens. Immunoassays allow for a large number of analytes to be screened and provide relatively rapid results. Uh, Dr. Gunan, you've used point-of-care tests for your patients. They'll pop up positive right in front of you for a particular drug class. So you'll often see like opiates positive. You know, well, what does that mean? Yeah, it might be the opiates that you prescribed, but is it that plus another opiate? So is it like a codeine plus a hydrocodone? So immunoassays can't differentiate between those two. They can't get that specific, but it can give a quick general picture of what might be positive. In some cases that, you know, that might be enough for a provider, but oftentimes, uh, you know, you'll be surprised when you send to a definitive analysis that's done by a reference lab, such as Quest, you could be surprised what you find in conjunction with those substances with that, what might be prescribed. So Jack, I used to preach, hey, look, if the presumptive test comes back with any results that the patient doesn't agree with, Hey, doc, I didn't use marijuana or cocaine. Okay, look, we'll send it for definitive. But I never looked at the other side of the coin. And as you know, we have an abstract coming up poster submission to a conference in September where we looked at if you only did this presumptive point of care with the cup or the dipstick, what would you miss by not sending it to the lab? And I'll tell you, you know, without giving away the data because it's not published, fentanyl was over 70% of you would miss if you just did the cup, right? There are now presumptive rapid screens for fentanyl. Some of the other, other numbers were pretty significant as well. So I used to think that just doing the cup would be enough for my practice. But now that I know the data, really, you need to get to the lab to get the lower cutoff levels to be able to detect these drugs as positive. And the one thing we, we didn't talk about, which we won't have much time for, is the cross-reactivity that happens with our rapid tests that we don't get on definitive testing. You have an example of like ibuprofen causing a marijuana false positive. And, you know, yep. some of the antidepressants cause false positives for marijuana, amphetamine, some of the NSAIDs might do it. So if you want to avoid false positives, you need to send the sample for more for definitive testing. Definitive. So Jack, while, while we're on it, why don't you explain to us a little bit about definitive testing? It uses a method, you know, with high sensitivity and high specificity, how we use liquid chromatography oftentimes or gas chromatography coupled with mass spectrometry arguably the best technology we have out there for identifying substances that occur naturally in nature or could be synthetic. Very impressive piece of technology. Um, and various labs, of course, employ these different types of methods for confirmation or, quote, for definitive testing. And I mentioned that could be gas chromatography coupled with mass spectrometry or liquid chromatography coupled with mass spectrometry. It begs the question, how do we combine all these methods into a cost-effective solution for providers, but it also balances clinical benefits. So can we rule out a certain amount of false positives using definitive testing? Can we rule out a certain amount of false negatives using definitive testing? What is the best way to employ those two? So Jeff, while you're on that exact point, why don't you talk a little bit about one of the paradigms of testing at Quest, how we do a presumptive with what we call reflex? Yeah, so that presumptive test will provide that general screen. Generally, it's pretty quick. Our philosophy here is that, look, if something's positive on a screen, it'll automatically reflex to that definitive test result to see 
what is positive? Was it, and you know, was that positive result that was on the screen? Is that from a, you know, a false positive occurrence? Is that from an actual positive from medication that was prescribed? And what else might be appearing? Well, only a definitive test, a map, you know, using mass spectrometry can really get that granular and show you what's happening with that patient. Hey, Jack, I was asked to be part of this consensus panel for the American Academy of Pain Medicine, boy, probably three years ago or so, maybe four years ago now. And we put together, you know, a dozen or so experts around the country and said, hey, what does optimal testing look like? And I was one of the only ones who said, you know, maybe this paradigm of presumptive followed by definitive makes a lot of sense. We were, of course, given the mandate that, hey, take cost out of the equation. And when you took cost out of the equation, almost everybody voted for definitive testing. Why wouldn't you? You get the most accurate results. You don't have to worry about false positives. You don't have to worry about cross-reactivity, these kind of things. So when we went through all of the available data, the experts around the country said, look, all else equal, we would recommend definitive testing all the time. But like you said, this paradigm of doing presumptive, a cost-effective, rapid, relatively sensitive method of testing, and confirming all of the drugs that the patient's supposed to be on or drugs that come up as that we think might be false positives can be a cost-effective way of limiting the amount of definitive testing we do, right? Because that's more expensive, but yet getting that clinical information that we need. Right. Confirm what's positive on screen with a definitive test is the balanced approach. Yep. So, you know, Jack, I'm often asked, hey, what drugs do we really test for? Maybe I'll talk about the pain side. You talk about the, you know, substance use side. From the pain side, we think about opioids, benzodiazepines. Often our patients take psychostimulants. Gabapentinoids, you know, gabapentin has become a drug of abuse. So we we might screen for for gabapentin. Muscle Mm -hmm. relaxants, some of the antidepressant drugs. Thinking about what drugs you want to consider testing on the clinical front. Jack, how about in the uh, substance use world, what might they want to look for? You definitely want to look for these illicit substances. You know, sometimes providers, they only want to test for what they're prescribing. And I'm like, look, looking for these illicit substances, adding that poly drug abuse picture really can point to aberrant behaviors in the patient. Patients will barter their prescription or controlled substances for an illicit substance and so forth. So maybe look for cocaine, look for methamphetamine definitely look for fentanyl. And then, you know, add some of these other emerging substances such as Kratom moving forward and making it, you know, very situational to your practice. You know, Jack, it's a great point. So you bring up Kratom, right? So if clinicians only did a point of care test, like a cup or a dipstick, I don't think Kratom's available. Kratom, Kratom, uh, everybody pronounced mm-hmm. it differently. Kratom. <laughs> some of the synthetic or designer drugs, bath salts, which were of frequent abuse, So it's good that we have these point of care cups. It's great. It gives us a rapid result. It's great that it can test for cocaine and amphetamine and, you know, marijuana and and even some of them do alcohol. But if you really want a complete picture of what your patient is taking and you want it to be an accurate picture with lower thresholds for cutoff or detection, really, I think you need to do definitive testing. Mm Mm-hmm. This has been a great session. Jack, I want to thank you for joining me. Let's just remind those clinicians who do prescribe controlled substances that you need to develop risk mitigation strategies. You need a skill set that includes understanding how to order and interpret drug tests. Because let's face it, look at all of the state guidelines. Look at all of the prescribing guidelines. 
drug monitoring has become a standard of care when managing patients on controlled substances. And it's become standard of care in the, in the opioid and, and substance use disorder world as well. And I just want to remind too, that drug monitoring from a clinical sense, it's just meant to be a monitoring tool. It's not a policing tool. We want it to open dialogue with patients that could, you know, lead to harm reduction and maybe even save a patient's life down the road. Hey, Jack, talk about our Rx Toxline. I think most of the audience at this point has heard us say that, you know, Quest is one of the largest labs. We service half of all physicians, half of all hospitals around the country. But what kind of resources do we have available if you need help with drug ordering or, or drug interpretation? You know, I like to say the technologies leverage, which we've talked about today, are more of an exact science than the interpretation of the results. And so we have a tox line. We have medical advisors trained in toxicology uh, there to support clinicians with questions about these results. And you do see some weird ones. And so it's very important that we have that service. And it's a very robust toxicology consultation service here at Quest Diagnostics, and we're happy to help. That's great. Dr. Jack Kane, I want to thank you for joining me today. I want to thank all of you and our audience for listening, understanding some of the details about presumptive versus definitive drug testing, understanding the pros and cons, where you could use uh, each one of those testings, where they work in collaboration with each other, Uh, please feel free to reach out to Quest if you have any questions. If you'd like to listen to some of our other podcasts, please go to questdrugtesting.com where you could find, boy, we have at least a dozen or more podcasts on various topics in drug monitoring and toxicology. This is Dr. Jeff Gooden. Thank you all so much for joining. Okay, that does it for today's episode and our discussion on presumptive and definitive drug testing. I hope you got a lot from the discussion. I know I sure did. I'd like to thank our experts, Dr. Gooden and Dr. Kane, for providing valuable information and insights. And I hope, again, you got a lot from the discussion. I just have a few notes to wrap up. To learn more about Quest Drug Monitoring offering, please visit our website, questdrugmonitoring.com. You'll find information on our test directory and other offerings, as well as a ton of educational resources. So please be sure to visit. If you have questions regarding test ordering or your results interpretation, and I know Dr. Gooden and Kane mentioned this, but please be sure to contact our experts at the Quest Diagnostics RX Tox line. Again, that number is 1-877-40-RX-TOX or 1-877-407-9869. Finally, to listen to this and all our other podcasts on drug testing, I know we, Dr. Gooden mentioned it, but we're up to 14 episodes now, so a ton of great information for you. Please be sure to visit questdrugtesting.com, or you can subscribe through your favorite podcast venue. Just go in and type in our title, Topics in Drug Testing, and the whole series will come right up. So again, thank you for your time. At Quest Diagnostics, we're committed to providing you results and insight to support your clinical decisions.